3: Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have a great show for everyone today. What do we have, Crystal?
2: Indeed we do. Lots to get to you this morning. So our own Secretary of Defense is warning Israel of a, quote, strategic defeat in pretty blockbuster comments. We'll bring you that as well as updates out of the Gaza Strip. Uh, Ron DeSantis' campaign seems to be in total chaos. Um, This comes as some key donor endorsements of Mm -hmm. uh, Nikki Haley, which is sort of crucial on that side of the race, I guess. I'll break that down for you. We have also Dems in Florida acting like complete authoritarians, uh, blocking Joe Biden's primary opponents from the ballot unilaterally. They are all speaking out, so we'll bring you those details as well. George Santos, expelled, gone but not forgotten, you might say. Not from my heart. Uh, A movie is going to come out about him as well, and he is— threatening to spill the tea on all his colleagues. So a lot lot that's interesting to get into there. Um, We also have Mehdi Hassan, uh, his show at MSNBC being canceled and a lot of debate over what exactly is going on there. I'm taking a look at a blockbuster report on exactly how Israel is waging this war um, differently, by the way, than the way they have approached things in the past, we'll break that down for you. We also have Scott Horton from the Libertarian Institute talking about the Netanyahu doctrine. But before we get into any of that, we got a little bit of a discount for all of you folks.
3: Yes, we got the holiday discount. We decided to extend it. Uh, I know that it's very helpful to all those who want to be able to give the gift of Breaking Points, and also if you're on the fence, you want to go ahead and sign up. So BreakingPoints.com. You can become a premium subscriber. We're discounting our yearly membership, which is what helps us most, especially it's you know December 2023, which means the one year that you're helping us out is going to help pay for all of our election coverage going into what is sure to be a completely insane and uh, fun, maybe wild ride. So. Anyway, if it'll you can be help a us wild out, ride. Let's fun, put it that way. Fun, uh, we can't
2: promise fun. The road to nowhere. It will be wild. As we, as we <laughs> once
3: famously called it here. So if you can help us out, uh, we would deeply appreciate it. And then a hard turn, what's going on in Gaza?
2: Yeah, so let's go ahead and give you the very latest coming out of the Gaza Strip. Put these images up on the screen. So as we brought you this weekend, the temporary truce is over, um, the ceasefire has ended, and Israel is back to a massive bombing campaign. What you are looking at here is six residential towers in the southern Gaza Strip in Khan Yunis that were all taken down by a massive bombing campaign there. Um, you can see, you know, bodies being pulled from the rubble, children being pulled from the rubble, um, the horror on the look, uh, look of the horror on children's faces here as they look at the destruction. This particular video is a 12-year-old little girl named Alma, who is trapped under rubble as well, along with her parents, her grandparents, and her siblings. And she is asking her rescuers to rescue them first, to help them first. Um, The very latest numbers that I saw is that in the renewed bombing campaign, 700 Palestinians were killed in a matter of 24 hours. So this is back and it is, you know, an all-out assault as it was before. Only the difference is now, and we can put this up on the screen. So as you'll recall, uh, in the early days of the war, the IDF told everyone to move south, um, you know, telling them this was the place to go. If you wanted to be safe, well, they have now divided the entire Gaza Strip into thousands of these little compartmented neighborhoods. And for those who are just listening, what we have up on the screen is this map that's been provided um, with all of these little tiny areas that have been designated. And they're effectively sending out messages of, hey, if you're in Area 88, move to Area 89, move to Area 270. And it's caused mass chaos and confusion. Um, This also comes, of course, after they have effectively destroyed all of the Northern Gaza Strip. I mean, Gaza City is completely completely uninhabitable. The majority of buildings there have been damaged or destroyed. Um, The majority of any sort of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, apartment buildings, et cetera, damaged or destroyed. Now they are expanding into the entirety of the Gaza Strip. So listen, the South was never safe. Um, They never- Completely avoided bombing the southern part of the Strip, but they are massively ramping up that campaign as they claim that Hamas leadership is uh, pro- predominantly in Khan units right now. Right. One of the southern cities where people fled to when they were told this was the place to go for. That's security. what's
3: happened over the last couple of days, uh, as both sides are claiming that each other violated the ceasefire. Not entirely clear, um, whatever uh, what the actual facts on the ground are with that situation. But strategically, things are signa- expanding pretty significantly. So uh, Marshal Kostov actually was at the. Race in defense form, he flagged this for me. He was like, this is definitely gonna be good, good for the show. Watch, witness this live. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, with honestly some extraordinary comments about the Israel campaign inside of Palestine, uh, warning it is going to lead to a quote, strategic defeat. Here's what he had to say.
0: This kind of a fight, the center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. So I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative.
3: So to translate that from military speak, strate- uh, the center of gravity, it's like a Clausewitz term uh, that a lot of people use in the military. The point is it's just that you want to focus in on what are you actually trying to achieve whenever you're waging military campaigns. So the reason that he says here, the center of gravity is a civilian population is because, quote, if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replicate a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. This is uh, almost exactly tracks with the U.S. campaign in Iraq. with had shock and awe. We defeated Saddam's military. It only took three and a half weeks. Bush-, Bush flies on the aircraft carrier and it's mission accomplished. Oh, wait, we have a massive insurgent war. The majority of our troops end up dying during the said insurgency and during the civil war. We have a 20-year occupation. and cost $2 trillion. We have ISIS and all the attendant problems. And uh, basically with Lloyd Austin, who forged his entire career in CENTCOM and more, uh, and was deeply involved in most of these campaigns, as well as the U.S. campaign against ISIS, is basically watching the exact same thing replicate itself um, in Gaza. And so that's really, I mean, I think his analysis is correct. I basically co-sign most of what he's saying. I don't have a problem with going after Hamas. I just think that the way they're doing it it also bears out, especially uh, you're going to be talking about in your monologue and the way the actual tactical uh, way that this is being done we pair it with the strategic overall goal ridding uh, the Gaza Strip of Hamas. Even in the near term, it seems like a nearly impossible task, especially with the way they're doing it. And the long term is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, We're probably going to be covering that all throughout the week about Hamas uh, support, not only inside of Gaza, but inside of the West Bank, what the day one after the campaign and all of that is going to look like. But uh, if you pair it with some of the broader problems, not only the way that Israel is conducting itself, the big fear that I think I've always had and tried to hold here is that The rest of the region is not gonna stay silent as this all continues, and that's what happened yesterday. Let's put this up there on the screen. Commercial ships, including a U.S. warship, were attacked by Houthi drones in the Red Sea. Now, many of these uh, commercial shipping vessels were not Israeli flagged, they were U.S. uh, or U.K. flagged. The U.S. missile destroyer that was actually in the area ended up shooting down three of the drones, but this comes, Crystal, after there was already that Houthi Jacking them? Is that Israeli tanker? I mean, this is one of the most vulnerable places in all of global shipping. Why we have so many US naval assets in the region. And these are in the, in the immediate term, they're drones. But don't forget, you know, this same guided missile destroyer has shot down uh, what they say are missiles that are being shot from Yemen all the way towards Israel. Now, no way to confirm whether or not that's true, but what we can't confirm is that they have kinetically engaged some of these Houthi assets. So it, just one of these things goes the wrong way. A U.S. sailor gets killed yep. on the high seas. <clears> it's <throat> We're living in a different world. That's well, a different game.
2: Yeah, so to yeah. start with that piece, uh, I was reading from some shipping experts ah, on yes, Twitter. Yeah. And as you said, this particular area is really critical. And you don't have to. So far, so far, they really haven't done any damage. You know, there hasn't been significant damage. No one has been killed. I don't think anyone has been injured. So you might say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, for these um, shipping, for these massive, you know, cargo ships, they have to be able to insure their passage. And if you have any sort of danger in this area, then insurance rates skyrocket. And then you either have them paying you know, massive rates of insurance or you have them having to reroute mm-hmm. around this area, which makes the trip much, 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 much longer. So it has a significant economic impact, even if they aren't really being that effective in doing any sort of damage. So that's on that piece, and of course it also just shows, listen, the Houthis in Yemen, they aren't going quietly here, you still have Hezbollah um, hanging out there, and the greater the uh, toll on civilian life that is inflicted in the Gaza Strip, the more fraught things will be, and of course the more at risk our own troops in the area will be as well. Going back to the Secretary of Defense and his statement that um, you can replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat, by the type of war that they are waging on the civilian population. This is clear common sense. I mean, I don't think that anyone could really deny this. I don't think that the Israeli government is so stupid as to think that this is not the case. You can already see in the West Bank, because of the toll that has been taken on civilian life, guess what? You're radicalizing more people. Support for Hamas is skyrocketing in the West Bank. You can only imagine what's happening within the Gaza Strip where you have such a massive toll on women and children and entire lives upended, the entire northern part of the Strip rendered uninhabitable, what do you think people's politics are gonna be after that happens to them and their kids and their family members and everything they have ever known? What do you think that is gonna lead to? So that is just obvious common sense. Now, with regard to why he's saying this, do I think it's because they're, you know, genuinely putting real pressure on the Israelis? And you see all these like US media reports, oh, the Israelis are open to the criticism. No, they're not. There is no sign that they're changing their approach whatsoever, none at all. So what is this? Number one, it's for us. It's for the domestic U.S. population. It's for the you know liberals watching MSNBC and we oh see look at the Biden administration. They're really trying. They're really trying. They're really good people. They're really trying. They're not just standing by and let this ethnic cleansing and genocide happen. They're actually trying to you know constrain the Israelis. That's number one, and number two is so that after the fact, when this is ultimately a strategic defeat and a catastrophe for Israeli security, because you've just further radicalized an already radicalized population, created even more militants, even more terrorists, so that they can say, look, we told you so. So they can have a sort of like ass covering moment. Those in my view are the two reasons for these comments from the Secretary of Defense, but make no mistake about it. Until and unless the US actually wants to use our bite are dollars, condition aid, say, no, we're not just gonna send you whatever bunker buster bombs you want, whatever you want it. No, we're not gonna provide you blanket cover at the UN, diplomatic cover throughout the world anymore. Until we do that, they are going to continue to prosecute this war in the exact same way they have been prosecuting this war. And I have this in my monologue today, but I'll mention it now as well. The reason is because BB is on political thin ice to say the least, And the population, the majority of them, some 58%, they think the IDF isn't being brutal enough. The percentage that thinks the IDF has gone too far, 1.8% of Jewish Israelis, I should say, of Jewish Israelis, Mm. 1.8% of the Jewish-Israeli population thinks the IDF has gone too far. This is when you have, at the least, a 70% civilian death rate and probably much, much higher than that. That's the rate of just women and children being massacred in this. This is with the entirety of the northern Gaza Strip being wiped down. This is the state of with a complete siege, with people starving and disease spreading. They think it hasn't been brutal enough. So with Netanyahu trying to save his political ass, Those are the people that he's listening to and the most fringe far-right parts of his coalition who he's trying to keep in line. Does he care if the U.S. is hand-wringing publicly or leaking to the press? No, he doesn't care. All he would care about is if we actually used the material leverage that we have, which they show no interest in doing.
3: Well, I mean, I just have to go back to Daryl Cooper. Something that he said is that, look, the day after 9-11, I didn't want to hear about nuance. And I think that's very understandable. And from their perspective, too, uh, Michael Tracy has talked about this. But, you know, they are basically photos of one of those babies who's being held by Hamas all over Israel. I mean, if that's the level of the media environment there, you can both be nuanced in terms of, like, I hate Netanyahu for what happened, but screw all of the people who did this. And that was, let's also be real. That was the predominant sentiment here in America. They wanted to bomb the crap out of Afghanistan. That was, if we had carpet bombed all of Afghanistan, the region where bin Laden was, and we'd killed a hundred thousand people, I don't think anybody in this country would have sniffed whatsoever. Now you can understand that, but you can also understand that uh, 20, 30 years later, you can look back on some of the decisions that were made in the heat of the moment and the whole, we don't want the smoking gun to be mushroom cloud and be like, yeah, it was pretty stupid. And we probably shouldn't fall for that next time. So The Israeli populace, I get it. I I absolutely do, especially in the context of how we responded and thought and felt, I think, after 9-11. However, uh, again, you know, you're talking, I think, at the correct point about the U.S. and what their overall posture on this is going to be. At a certain point, I don't actually have as much of a problem with some of these comments because— this buys us breathing room in the future. When the Israelis are like, hey, can you guys come clean this up and do all this peacekeeping? We're like, no, you built You break it, you buy it. You are the ones who are responsible. When you have a massive insurgency on your hands five, 10 years from now, and you block a peace process, it's like, that's your issue, man. We're not gonna be going rolling our troops and Humvees into uh, the downtown Gaza city, Khan Yunus, or any of this other. So from that perspective, Crystal, I'm actually okay with the way that the secretary is saying it. Now, I don't disagree, I don't think it's necessarily a Bad thing about conditioning aid and all that, but I honestly don't think it would make any difference. The Israelis have plenty of munitions, they got plenty of bombs, they got fire. they're one of the world's most advanced uh, militaries. Even if we didn't provide them bombs, we'd drop them whatever they had. Uh, the U.S. influence on this is both overstated and understated. Understated to the point of what you're saying is it doesn't ma- necessarily match the rhetoric, but at the end of the day, like they don't need our money or our support at this point to wage war. Now, in 1980, that's a different story, but at this point, not really. Maybe not
2: they're gonna in the do short whatever term. Maybe yeah. not in the short term. But- But um, there are famous quotes of Israeli prime ministers, may have even been Netanyahu, basically saying, the only people that matter, it's the U.S. Yeah. The only president in the world, the only world leader whose opinion I have to care about is the U.S. So, yeah, would it be a devastating blow to Israel if we were to withhold our diplomatic cover if we were to stop sending them the weapons that we've been sending them, stop sending them the billions of dollars in aid that we've been sending them, yeah, that would that would be a real blow. Now, could they continue for some time with this war? Yeah, they have enough to continue for some time for this war, but- let's not pretend like the U.S. doesn't have leverage here that we can use. I also disagree with the idea that this is buying us some window to, you know, after they do all of this damage in Gaza and we're actually going to get to this piece in a bit and are pushing us to, oh, we're, we need these refugees resettled and why don't you use your aid dollars to push these Arab countries around the region to take in these refugees, that there is no indication to me that we're going to buck anything that Israel wants us to do because there's no track record of that whatsoever, certainly not from the Biden administration. And we have new reporting, put this up on the screen from The Intercept, uh, new comments from Bibi. His goal for Gaza is to, quote, thin the population to a minimum. Um, And by the way, Little noticed fact here, but uh, Ryan Grimm, of course, the- notices these things. The White House recently requested billions of dollars to support refugee resettlement from Ukraine and also from Gaza just back in October. So let me give you a few of the details here about uh, what BB is up to. He's tasked his top advisor, Ron Dermer, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, with designing plans to, quote, thin— The Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip to a minimum, according to a bombshell new report in an Israeli newspaper that was founded by the late Republican billionaire Sheldon Adelson. So this outlet is considered to be basically an official organ for Netanyahu. Ryan writes, it reported that the plan has two main elements. The first would use the pressure of the war and the humanitarian crisis being created by Israel's war to persuade Egypt to allow refugees to flow to other Arab countries. And the second would open up sea routes so that Israel could, quote, allow a mass escape to European and African countries. Dermer, who's originally from Miami, is a Netanyahu confidant and was previously Israeli ambassador to the US, enjoys close relations with many members of Congress. Oh, interesting. Let's put this next piece up on the screen. US considers a plan to condition aid to regional, to, uh, regional states, Arab regional states, based on resettlement. So they, uh, this new initiative sub- submitted to Congress calls for conditioning American aid to Arab countries on their willingness to receive refugees from Gaza and effectively assist in the ethnic cleansing that Bibi Netanyahu is proposing here. The proposal was shown to key figures in the House and Senate from both parties. Longtime lawmaker Representative Joe Wilson has even expressed open support for it, while others who are privy to the details have so far kept a low profile, saying that publicly coming out in favor of the program could derail it. Um, so they go on to say— this is the you know the way they frame it. They frame this pushing Palestinians forever out of these lands that they'd already been forced into. They frame this in humanitarian terms, saying the only moral solution is to ensure that Egypt opens its borders and allows for the refugees to flee from the tyrant control of Hamas. They go on to say Iraq and Yemen receive an approximate $1 billion in U.S. foreign aid. Turkey receives more than $150 million. Each of these countries receive enough foreign aid and have a large enough population to be able to accept refugees, adding up to less than 1% of their population. And they even go so far as to have done the math on how many Palestinian residents of the Gaza Strip that they want to force into these different countries to quote-unquote thin out the population. So apparently— there is uh, some bipartisan support here among our lawmakers to assist Netanyahu with this process. The
3: reason why I think this is just all fan fiction is that the Egyptians have already said, "quote we are prepared to sacrifice millions of lives to protect our land and to make sure that nobody is coming. I, gen- I actually think this would start a general war in the Middle East. There's no question in my mind that if they tried to expel millions of Palestinians or hundreds of thousands, whatever, to the various one, parts of these regions, they would it would simply collapse. And the populations themselves would not accept it. The Jordanian population, the uh, uh, any of the Middle Eastern populations, the Saudis would almost certainly have to do something just because of the they, the way that they're trying to keep a cap right now on all the videos and all the stuff that's spreading throughout the Arab and the Islamic world. I think really what's going to happen is that, and I think what they're r- really doing is an indiscriminate bombing campaign. They can think all they want till kingdom come about, oh, we're going to get these people out of there. It's just not going to happen from a from an international community perspective. So uh, I'm not quite so sure to take it seriously, even if it might be their overall goal. I think there's um, the end state of this is pretty clear. Eventually, they're going to come to a point where they're going to stop bombing. They're probably going to level the vast majority of the infrastructure. I think the vast majority of the population will remain inside of Gaza. Uh, actually, I don't think a uh, large refugee... Uh, settlement will come out of it simply because the Egyptians control the only other border, and they're not going to let it happen. And that's when you get to the whole end state of insurgency of day. You know ne- that's when they're going to beg us and the EU to come in and peacekeep uh, Gaza City. They're going to have to deal with whatever comes next. I mean, obviously, I'm saying hell no to all of that, including this, by the way, because it's outrageous and it would have a detrimental impact on overall U.S. security. So they can want what they have, whatever they want, and I'm certain that there are elements of the Netanyahu. Uh, but I still fall crystal on the fact is is that they're trying to just punish the hell out of the population yeah. and they're trying to kill or, or let's put it two ways punishing the population is secondary aim number two killing Hamas is supposedly aim number one they're willing to accomplish one and two at the same time but just particular not w- really willing to care and pulling the trigger based on 10 20 percent type of intelligence, which I know you're talking quite a bit yeah. about in your monologue. But I still think there's a big difference between that and supposed like ethnic cleansing and or genocide. Well, I mean, very, these words do mean well, something.
2: It's very clear yeah. that their goal is ethnic cleansing.
3: Well, some very of the clear. cabinet's goal is ethnic cleansing. That's Bebe
2: correct. Netanyahu's goal yes. is ethnic cleansing. Now, will they accomplish that goal? That depends on the U.S. That depends on the U.S. That depends on Egypt. Is that their goal? I don't think you can deny it at this point. Like, that is clearly their goal. Now, we can quibble over whether or not it's a, it's a genocide. I think based on the international definition and based on Israeli uh, scholars of the Holocaust who have look at, looked at it, I think it has. But you can certainly say, if you don't like those words, you can certainly say indiscriminate killing of civilians. I'm breaking down this report from 972 magazine, but just to give you a preview of it, you know, when we talk about, okay, their goal is to to kill Hamas— No, their number one goal is to put a quote-unquote shock into the civilian population and hope that they're going to somehow turn on Hamas. We can already see that that has failed. I mean, this has only increased, you look at the West Bank, has only increased support for Hamas. It's only going to increase, these are the comments from the Secretary of Defense, um, radicalization and support for terror and violent resistance within the Gaza Strip. So um, in any case, uh, it's important to keep an eye on what they actually want to accomplish because these B.B. is a a savvy, uh, savvy negotiator. He is a savvy politician. He thinks he can work over Joe Biden, who he says he's known for 40 years and who is, you know, aging and frail and doesn't have all his wits about him. I mean, that's obviously
3: true. Correct.
2: um, He thinks he can manipulate U.S. public opinion, which he also has been very effective at doing as well. So I don't think it's so preposterous to put it off the table that some version of his ideal plan could actually come to fruition.
0: Right rug flooring.
2: We also wanted to give you an update on a just unbelievable story coming out of Jerusalem and, and the facts of, uh, you know, the quote-unquote only democracy in the region. Let's put this up on the screen. This is disturbing. I just want you guys to know. So what you see here is, and I'm going to give you the backstory in a moment, but this is in Jerusalem. You see this man kneeling on the ground, hands up. He's saying in Hebrew, please don't shoot me, please, please don't shoot me. And he is effectively, summarily executed there and allowed to bleed out from his injuries and he dies. Now, let me tell you, put this up on the screen. This is uh, Demi Reader, who is an Israeli journalist, um, actually, one of the co founders of that magazine, 972, that I just referenced. So here's the backstory. In 2016, an Israeli soldier uh, executed a wounded Palestinian militant point-blank on camera. He became somewhat of a hero to the far right. And the execution of wounded suspects briefly became a wedge issue in Israeli society. Briefly because it's been long accepted, at least since the Second Intifada, that even if someone used a butter knife to attack soldiers, they might also have a suicide vest and therefore need to be finished off just in case. Which he says makes no sense to me and I don't know if it ever happened, but okay. Fast forward to 2023. Major cheerleader of that Israeli soldier and a convicted terrorist supporter himself, Itamar Ben-Gavir, is police minister. After October 7th, he randomly begins handing out weapons to civilians, ostensibly because you need a good guy with a gun, etc. Well, this past Friday, and this gets to the video that we just watched, two Hamas paramilitaries shot up a bus stop in Jerusalem, killed three people, including a pregnant teacher, the first guy to engage them is a local lawyer and former policeman, I should add, Duran Castleman, civilian who happens to be armed, a good guy with a gun. He kills both gunmen, stops the attack before more people could be killed. Then, and this is the part that you guys just watched, IDF soldiers arrive. Castleman, the hero, realizes that he might be mistaken for one of the attackers. So he drops his handgun, he kneels on the road. This is what you saw in that video. He lifts his t-shirt to show he's got no suicide vest on. He asks them in perfect Hebrew not to shoot, explaining who he is. One of the soldiers, a settler, with a self-confessed extremist background, shoots him anyway, in the abdomen, on camera, and walks off. So that man that you just saw killed on camera, executed on camera with his hands up, that was an Israeli hero, who had stopped these gunmen who were massacring people, these Hamas gunmen who were massacring people. When more security arrives, they assume Castleman was a gunman, so they let him bleed out. He bleeds to death. The settler soldier who executed him gives smug interviews, gets much kudos from other far-right figures. They later erase those tweets. The army and police said they won't be investigating before you turning under pressure. Netanyahu, you ready for this one? He chimes in and says, I support the policy of handing out weapons. Sometimes there's a price to pay, but say la vie. Lavi. that's what he said in Arabic so um, this Hebrew in, yeah. uh, sorry in Hebrew um, so this man Duran a true hero who was there who stopped these Hamas militants was executed by Israeli soldiers, even as he was there kneeling in the street. This is the reality of the quote-unquote only democracy in the Middle East. Well,
3: I mean, I guess it happened in the West Bank, right? Look, the whole, or sorry, it happened in Jerusalem. The problem is that with this entire thing is it actually demonstrates all of the worst pressures that are on Netanyahu, because this showed you the settler who was provided with weapons under the Ben-Gavir policy. Then it also showed you that Netanyahu himself has a very hard time grappling with this. He didn't even call, The family until yesterday, the Israeli military after there was a massive
2: public reaction. So after
3: there was a huge public reaction saying, Hey, how can you? do this. He put out a tweet and said, Yuval Castleman is the hero of Israel. He saved many lives. Today, I spoke with his father. Uh, This is a wonderful family. The entire nation uh, mourns with them. Now, in terms of the investigation to itself, they don't know which way that they're supposed to go because they initially were not supposed to have the police or the military even investigate this person, the settler, whether he should have had weapons or not, and what punishment this person will suffer. You know, the original case that he talks about, I remember covering a lot of that at the time because I if anyone's seen the video, it's crazy because basically there's a wounded guy on the ground and he's just walking around and despite no orders or any of that, he just bait, shoots him in the head. There's no other way to describe it. I've watched the video a dozen times, Jesus. reported on a lot at wow. the time because there was a big controversy around putting him through court martial and then his eventual trial because in old Israel, it was a, open-shut case. It's like, there's no way this is going to happen. But he became a genuine hero, and to the point where uh, he, even by a decent segment of society, is celebrated today for what happened to him, and they're seen as a miscarriage of justice. The overall prosecution, the initial court-martial, it split the IDF apart, and more importantly, it split Israeli society apart. So that is what is downstream of a lot of the settler providing them guns, and then also, when it comes to this, I think it was a big rip between secular society, settler society, and then the way the people inside Israel are yeah. uh, looking at this because as I've explained here before, you know, a huge portion of the Israeli population didn't even serve in the military. And this is a retired policeman, had a gun on him, did the heroic thing at the time, he kills, he literally kills him, he's a trained police officer, right. But and then does everything you're supposed to do. He's like, oh, I'm in a chaotic situation. Drop the gun. Put the hands up. Show that I don't have a vest on because he knows. He's like, well, you know, they, a lot of them will shoot if they think you have a vest. He did everything that you were supposed to do. Then he gets executed. So that's a tragedy, and the person obviously involved should be at the very least, you know, fired from the job, removed from service, not uh, celebrated. The fact though that it took days for the prime minister to have to respond to this, I think, demonstrates to everyone very clearly what the pressures inside of Israel are on Netanyahu, not from the general population from inside the coalition himself because yeah. inside that coalition they don't want to talk about this at all it's a tragedy say la vie etc and they want to move past it it shows you who he's really really working for and i think that is the single you know broken record single biggest problem in the prosecution of this war is that you have the overall leader of the country with some of the worst uh pressures on him from a fringe element of society which is not <laughs> how you should be wanting to conduct a you know a defensive operation a war which is supposed to bring the entire country together. It's a a nightmare from a political strategic perspective inside Israeli society. I think something will break eventually. I really do.
2: You know, one thing I want to say related to this, because I I talked about, you know, the poll numbers of uh, it's like 58% Mm -hmm. of Israeli society who thinks the IDF hasn't been brutal enough, only 1.8%. is like, yeah, maybe they've gone too far. Um, So you have a majority who want even more viciousness, even more brutality. And I just want to make it really clear, like, I don't think that Jewish Israelis are different than any other people on the planet. But I do think that when you have for so many decades you've had this brutal military occupation of the West Bank and now you've had this brutal blockade of Gaza and you know there's is, Israel is doing very well as a society, relatively wealthy society, people doing well, living, you know, living good lives, all of that. And just over these borders You know, in effectively the same territory, territory that at this point is controlled by Israel, you have people who are living in these desperate conditions. I think that does something to a society. Um, Again, I don't think that, you know, people are different in Palestine versus Israel versus here versus anywhere else in the world. But when you live in that kind of a society, you know, the level of dehumanization that you have to sort of internalize to justify this treatment of millions of people right across the border, right there, you know, that you could go and see with your own eyes. I, I do think it does something to a society, and so you know, that's why uh, you know, someone who, if this had been a Palestinian who was unarmed and posing no threat to anyone, and who was ex- executed in the street, that settler who uh, killed him would still be a hero. Yeah. you know, they would still be bragging about it. It still would be broadly supported. And, you know, the number of Palestinians who are, you know, rounded up and arrested and no charges filed and in this indefinite detention, this is not really controversial within Israeli society. So I think that's where that's why the governments have for a long time now been increasingly right wing, increasingly right wing, where they're very clear they don't want a two state solution. You know, they're they're doing everything they can to block the possibility of two state solution or openly, openly talking about that. Um, I think that's what happens over time when you have these conditions that are imposed on a population for so long.
3: I will take a turn at trying to explain it, which is, and if you know, if you've ever been there, it's, not, it's, it's, it's it's, understandable, so just bear with me. Most of the people, the generation of today, the people who are serving the IDF, grandfather or grandparents, of great-grandparents, likely liquidated in the Holocaust or survived. We're lucky enough to survive. You are beaten into you from day one. The state of Israel exists, so that will never happen again you have mandatory military service going back to basically the founding of the country. Your fathers and or grandfathers fought in 67 and in the Yom Kippur War, where Israeli annihilation was absolutely on the table. So you have had two lessons in the span of 100 years where you have learned if we don't fight back with everything that we possibly have, they will wipe us off the face of the earth. And. On top of that, you now live with 20 years of war with Hamas. And look, I'm not saying that Hamas doesn't suffer more, obviously, in terms of casualties, but it's no picnic living in a country where you've got rockets coming down, you have to have Iron Dome, and everybody knows somebody who was affected either in that war, at the same time, too, in uh, modern society and like what it's like to live in Israel. You can't even go inside of a shopping mall without getting wanded for a suicide vest because they had, I think, over 1,000 attacks That happened inside of Israel, suicide bombing style attacks, blowing up buses, public infrastructure, all that type of thing before they eventually built the wall with Gaza. So, you know, that's not that hard to that's actually not that hard to understand why you get to a mindset of where that's predominant inside your society. And the total separation seems necessary because it's an us or them mentality. And let's be real, too. A lot of the Palestinians, they would kill them if they had the chance and if they had the means. And so and they've shown that throughout decades now. Of bordering both Gaza and Hamas. I understand it completely. I'm not saying uh I'm not saying I like it or I'm even justifying it, but it's a different set of circumstances than we live here in the West, just completely and utterly different. And it's one of those where, you know, when you're saying it, Crystal, I think the dehumanization, all of that, that is just inherent to what it's like to live in an active war zone and what it's like to also have a generation at war today, your father's generation at war, or grandfather, and to have, and know and have the knowledge that probably 90% of your descendants or ancestors were uh, liquidated by the Nazis. Uh, that's a that's just a deep cultural imprint that's not going to go away, I think, for a long time. And they spend all their time in society. They don't let you forget that either when you're in school, uh, whenever you're coming up. It's a, it's a part of the culture which is, uh, I think, goes to the very core of what it means to be Israeli. Even if you are a Sephardic Jew or any of that, it's beaten into you that over the you know the 2,000 years of persecution, the pogroms, a large portion of Israeli societies. Also, Russian. suffered horribly under the Soviet Union, under the Tsar before that. So I yeah. think culturally, I, I, I understand it completely. I'm not well, trying to justify it, I'm just like, You have to try and put yourself in the mind of what it is like to live in that state for the last 75, 80 years, and also to suffer You a society-wide level. Terror bombings, which America would never tolerate, even 10% of what Israel has had to go through, too.
2: The number one song in Israel right now is this like rap song Mm -hmm. that calls for annihilating everyone and assassinating specific celebrities who have supported the Palestinian cause. Yeah. That's the state of the society. And part of what I have found so... Wrenching and sickening and disturbing because again, I don't I don't think Israeli Jews are any different than any other people around the world. They're not is how quick there is a justification of things that should be moral atrocities that should be completely morally off the table, certainly among a nation that considers itself you know, developed part of the first world, democracy, quote unquote, etc. And that's what to me is so disturbing. And you know, every basically group of people, who justifies these sorts of horrors and atrocities against their fellow human beings, they all have that sense of it's us or them. They all have that sense of like, we're the victims. I mean, you know, Nazi Germany, same thing, like the sense of victimization and it's us or them and we're under threat, et cetera, et cetera. Like that is the feeling that is used to justify absolute horrors. And so to watch that unfold in real time Um, has been, you know, has been absolutely stunning. There was a a journalist who posted this long thread. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter about like, I want you to understand that when you are posting pictures of dead Palestinians, like, I don't care. I do not care at all. Posting this publicly. Again, a journalist, an Israeli journalist posting this publicly. And uh, so that to me has been one of the things that has been so shocking to watch unfold is how quickly... And how quickly even people here in the U.S. who haven't experienced all this trauma and don't have that, you know, general, generational wound and aren't experiencing the the suicide attacks and the, you know, sirens going off and the, you know, quote-unquote rocket fires, et cetera, who are also like, yeah, justifying the annihilate them all, wipe them out, et cetera, et cetera. So— um, yeah, it's disturbing. I guess that's all I can say.
3: I understand. Uh, I understand where you're coming from. I think you know we should all just try and put ourselves in the minds of both of these people. I'm not. I can put it from the Palestinian perspective too. I mean, it's crazy. Daryl Cooper, I think, does the best job of that. He's like, look, we tried everything. You know, going this in our lifetimes, in our grandfather's lifetimes. I've met Palestinian. <clears throat> excuse me. I've met Palestinian people who still have the key to their house that they were that was taken away from them in 1948. Yeah. And that gets passed down, even though that woman's mom is dead. It was passed down to the mom. They still have that key mounted above their door. So don't forget that too, you know, on the other side. They, they remember and they remember it's deep. It goes into the kids. It goes into their grandkids. So these, are, uh, these things don't heal easily.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
3: Right rug flooring. Let's move on to uh, domestic politics. There's absolute uh, craziness going on here with Paul Ryan, with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. But I think the major uh, story of this is the absolute downfall of Ron DeSantis, not necessarily in the polls, although some of that too, but amongst the donor set who have done the hardest pivot of all time. They're going all in on Nikki Haley after her star Debate performance, best exemplified by this is Paul Ryan, the leader, the donor class hero himself, coming on CNBC, identified as an investor. Okay. Uh, to go ahead and endorse Haley, here's what he had to say.
5: Do not discount the Americans for Prosperity endorsement of Nikki Haley two days ago. That's actually a really big deal. And the reason that that's a re- really big deal is you could say that Ron DeSantis's big advantage over Nikki Haley was his ground game in Iowa, which is impressive. America's Prosperity has an extremely impressive ground game. Uh, this is the Koch Network's um, ground game. They just gave that to Nikki Haley. So not only does that level her up in Iowa with Ronda that g- gives her a ground game in all these other states. And the calendar plays to her advantage. So I'm not saying I'm a, you know, all for Nikki Haley. I'm for beating Donald Trump. I'm for any Republican who can beat Donald Trump. But I think if you had to pick a growth stock, I think Nikki's the growth stock. And the fact that she got this endorsement, I think, matters a lot. So the question is, since more than about half Republicans do not want Donald Trump to be our nominee, I'm among those half, can someone consolidate the sport in time to he's win? And the six question, six I think, I I think that, that's, that's possible. I think that's possible. Is he, it? He's
3: got 66% in the polls, though, against the other candidates.
5: He, he's. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I think it's still plausible because... Things can still happen. She's got a lot of momentum.
3: If one person can quickly consolidate the non-Trump field, then they'll have 30%. Okay, yeah, that math checks out. This is the Iowa fan fiction is driving me crazy. And somehow, people like uh, Paul Ryan, Ron DeSantis, and now the Koch Network have seemingly bought into this. Put this up there. I know Ryan and Emily covered this, but it's still very important just for us to weigh in on. The Koch Network endorsed Nikki Haley to push the GOP past Trump. This is significant for two reasons. Obviously, the Koch Network has both boatloads of money. They have some of the biggest consultant infrastructure in all of Washington. They've got Americans for Prosperity. They have super PACs. they got 501c3s, 501c4s that they're all throwing behind her. They've got polling, ad buys, all these things. This is potentially hundreds of millions of dollars that she's now added to her war chest. Now, the big question for them is around, what are you trying to do? Iowa seems to be the consolidation dream What people seem to forget, Crystal, Uh about uh, 2016, Donald Trump didn't win Iowa. He didn't even get second in Iowa. He got third in Iowa. You know what did happen, though? He won New Hampshire, then he won South Carolina, then he won the majority of the states on Super Tuesday, and he won Florida, and he won, shall I go on? The point is is that Iowa itself is actually not all that indicative of anything. The only reason that this myth persists is really because of the Obama campaign. Mm -hmm. When Obama winning Iowa was genuinely impactful because it showed to a lot of black voters in the Democratic Party, no, 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 white people actually would vote for this. Guy, therefore, we now have permission, which is why he went on to win South Carolina. He ended up cleaning up, he basically wrapped up the majority of it on Super Tuesday. But Hillary also did very well in New Hampshire the next time. The thing is is with Trump is it's about the states that come afterwards. And for all the media you know, attention and all of that, no one is going, I'll put it right here, I'll eat a sock again Mm -hmm. if I have to. Nobody will beat Donald Trump in the state of New Hampshire. Period. It is Trump country, has been since 2016. The idea and, and the polling, a lot of this stuff bears it out. And the problem, too, is that these donors are trying to play pick me with all of these different candidates like DeSantis or any of the, or Tim Scott or any of these others when they're facing a structural problem of the voters don't like them. Put this up there too, because this is a part of this. The DeSantis campaign is in complete freefall. Their big money, the super PAC, has completely imploded. The new chief executive has been fired. A new one has been brought on. Several of the major strategists who work for the organization called Never Back Down have either been fired or have left. They appear to be running out of money on a pretty long time scale. And their majority of their support, which was told to them from the beginning, if you'll recall, Crystal, Ken Griffin, the billionaire, was like, I'll give him as much money as he needs. And then the first sign of trouble, he's like, no, 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 I I didn't mean it like this. Uh, And there's how many of those are out there? The campaign itself is now blaming its own super PAC. If we can put this Politico tear sheet up there because this is hilarious. They are now blaming their own super PAC for leaking against them and for bad television advertising. They wrote in a memo to their donors that never back down and their field organization all of that is not up to snuff and that they are leaking about their own problems whenever it comes to polling, that their TV advertising didn't end up helping them out. I mean, this is not the sign of a healthy overall organization. And it just shows you how quickly, I think, that these establishment folks can move from one to another, which, at the end of the day, is a complete fantasy. As, you know, at least get credit to that CNBC anchor who was like, he's got 66% of the vote. What are you talking about?
2: Yeah, there's a basic math problem here. (laughs) I just pulled up the national Republican primary polling. We're Mm -hmm. going to show you Iowa and New Hampshire in a minute. but. There has not been a poll, I don't know when. Every single poll in here has Trump over 50%. So even if you do in some fantasy world consolidate all of the other uh, voters, that still doesn't add up to a victory. So, okay. okay. Um, You know, it is, I mean, I'm just watching with amusement at the whole Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley thing because the Koch network endorsing Nikki Nikki Haley, Mm -hmm. I mean, that must have just been brutal for Ron. Because he really, he was running his campaign in this unusual way of relying on that super PAC much more extensively than campaigns you usually do. And that's because you can take in these unlimited contributions. So he felt like, okay, I've got these few billionaires who say they're all in for me, Ken Griffin and co. Yep. And so I can take in unlimited funds there. And yeah, they don't get as good ad rates and I don't have direct control, et cetera. But since we can get so much money there, that's the way to go. And now you can see that strategy as the donors are fleeing him and they're instead, I mean, they have no loyalty. They're picking Nikki for whatever reason. She's the flavor of the moment. And Ron is kind of underwhelmed and underperformed and doesn't seem like he's got the juice. And so now he's left in this really dire situation. My sense is basically that if he doesn't win Iowa, he's going to drop out. And he could possibly drop out even before that. But I think what's going to happen, if I had to make a prediction, he drops out after Iowa there is some big, you know, effort to unify behind Nikki and try to make her the the anti-Trump, like the one to beat Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But it's already way too late. It's already way too late for that to have any prayer of succeeding.
3: Yeah, oh, no, you are absolutely correct on that. And actually, some of that comes through from the DeSantis campaign itself in a more recent interview with Meet the Press that happened just on Sunday where he's like, we are going to win Iowa. And when you start making benchmarks like that, I think like you're right, Crystal, which is they're laying it so that they can make that case to the donors, this is what we're going to happen. And But then it puts you in a precarious situation where they can rug pull you almost immediately, whoever is left, if you don't end up winning the state. Let's take a listen to what he said.
0: Well, let's talk about the stakes on caucus night. If you don't come in at least second,
3: would you then
0: drop out of the race? How critical is Iowa?
1: Well, we're, we're going to win the caucus. We, we're doing everything that, that we need to do it. Uh, but we're what, if to build Governor, what if and you I've don't, Governor? What if you don't? And I said from the beginning, we, we are, we are, we're going to win. We're going to win the. We're going to win the caucus.
0: Bottom line is, Iowa do or die for you, Governor.
1: We're gonna win Iowa. Uh, I think it's gonna help propel us to the nomination, but I think we'll have a lot of work that we'll have to do beyond that. I don't think you take anything for granted. And I do I do recognize that there have been people that have won who've not gone on to win the nomination. I think this year's a little bit different.
3: This year's a little bit different. <laughs> hmm, yeah. Uh, anytime you have to say that qualifier, it's no bueno. Let's put this up there, just in any case wondering about what Iowa actually looks like. Here we have our own custom graphic from the real clear politics average. Oh, look at that. Donald Trump at 47% currently in the Iowa Republican caucus. He barely is even campaigning there. Ron DeSantis, who let's remember this, has the endorsement of the sitting governor of the state, mm. is only at 17%. Nikki Haley at 14%, Tim Scott at six, Vivek Ramaswamy at five percent. Forty-seven, I mean, you just can't it could can barely compete with that. In any other normal race that the media is covering, this is a complete open and shut case. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying you should cancel or anything like that. I support it. But you can't say with a straight face that you're going to win Iowa. It's, Let's take a little bit of a turn over to New Hampshire where the Nikki Haley dream is currently going on. Oh, uh, Trump, 45%. Nikki Haley, 19. Chris Christie, 11. Ron DeSantis, 8. Vivek DeSantis Ramaswamy, 7. DeSantis losing to
2: Chris Christie DeSantis, and Nikki Haley To New be Hampshire.
3: fair, Chris Christie always did particularly well in New Hampshire. He had a big moment there in 2016. It's definitely because of proximity and all these other things. It's definitely more favored to somebody like him, and to Nikki Haley as well. But also,
2: independence vote in New Hampshire. Right. So it's independence a can vote in New Hampshire.
3: Too. It can be a little bit different. Uh, that said, forty-five percent. Like you're not getting over that hump. And it also, if you factor in a media bump, whenever you win, uh, like you do in Iowa, and success, quick succession, you have something like New Hampshire come. What is that really going to account for in a multi-field scenario? It did not work for Ted Cruz, who won the Iowa caucuses in two thousand and sixteen. He got the media bump that you hope to get from actually winning. Didn't matter. Marco got second. Same thing. It didn't matter. Jeb Bush I believe came in fifth, maybe sixth in New Hampshire. It just demonstrates that money, all of that, even winning Iowa, the bump whenever you're going against uh, someone like Trump who has such a beloved, is such a beloved figure in the Republican Party and now after he's already won the presidency, it's just an impossible task. I probably always was and if I could go back, I'm not sure DeSantis should have run ever in the first place. We Although sure there's a whole shoot start your start shot. With. There's a shoot your shot argument I think that you should always make, but I, I, I don't know. I think this is irreparably tarred his is political. Yeah,
2: either. I mean, I just also feel like DeSantis just doesn't have, just doesn't have it. Yeah. Whatever it is, he just doesn't have it. And so whether it was this time that he was gonna lose or next time when he's gonna lose to like Don Jr. or whoever Possible. comes next or, right. or Ted Cruz or whoever, I think is probably just not in the cards for him. The other big issue among many that they have is DeSantis and Nikki Haley and everybody else. They don't actually want to go directly at Trump that much in his policy mm-hmm. or, like, you know, say certainly the things that are obvious that were problems with him, like January 6th. They don't want to talk about that. And so the best argument has always been about electability. But who could believe at this point that Donald Trump's not electable? I think Donald Trump is probably electable. I don't like it, but I think yeah, he probably is. Obviously. When you look at Joe Biden's approval rating, the fact young people are abandoning him in droves and um, you know, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans and the economy is trash and all of these things, and he's, you know, super old and can barely formulate a sentence, then yeah, I think Donald Trump probably can beat that guy. So, um, to argue at this point, oh, there's no way Trump can win, and I'm the winner, and if you want to defeat Joe Biden, you got to go with me. I just don't think that that is a compelling point at this point whatsoever.
3: Yeah, we, we were going to cover this last week, but Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics, who's one of my favorite election analysts, he wrote a piece called Not Only Can Trump Win Right Now, He is the Favorite to Win, there's and no describes it. it as a Republican best set to win the election since George W. Bush in 2004, which is the last time a Republican won the popular vote in this country. So people should really let these circumstances sink in. Now, it's a long time till election day, all of that, you know, 11 months to go. But as where things stand right now, I would hell of a lot be rather Trump, not only in the primary, in the election, as opposed to Joe Biden or any of the other people yeah. he's running against. And
2: you know who else needs to have that sink in for them is the Democratic Party saga. Oh, well, that's not gonna happen because <laughs> that's a
3: perfect turn to where we are right now. In an inexplicable and yet totally explicable move, The Florida Democratic Party has now officially put Joe Biden on the ballot in Florida, canceling their primary and effectively making it so that there will be no democracy in the state of Florida for Democrats. Put this, please, up there on the screen. So you can see them chanting four more years. The thing is, is that they chanted it before there was ever going to be a primary. So let's put this please up there on the screen. Uh, I love the political headline here. Florida Democrats plan to cancel presidential primary enraging Dean Phillips' campaign. Not just Dean Phillips' campaign, as we will show you, but-
2: Yeah, I love how they um, only mention him when he's not even the leading Democratic right. Whatever. contender. Let's, anyway,
3: Let's move past it. Classic. Uh, what they're doing, <laughs> and Nikki Freed, the chair of the Florida Democratic Party, says that the party has, quote, followed its standard process and says that it is dismayed now by Dean Phillips's conspiratorial and inappropriate comments comparing the state of Florida to an Iranian regime as part of his knee-jerk reaction to long-established procedures. This comes to the delegation selection plan that they basically sped through the Democratic Convention where, through bureaucratic means, they just canceled the presidential primary completely. Here is what Dean Phillips had to say about that.
1: Hey everybody, what happened in Florida yesterday is a tragedy and a travesty. The Florida Democratic Party decided, just a handful of people decided to disenfranchise millions of Democratic voters in Florida by saying we're not gonna have a presidential primary. I'm running for president, there are others running for president as Democrats. And this is the kind of stuff that happens in Tehran, not in Tallahassee. We've gotta do something about this. I've been a lifelong Democrat, you know that. Supported our party since I was in my 20s. Been a member of Congress for three terms and was a member of House Democratic leadership. I've never seen something so absurd, so disenfranchising, and so suppressive of Democratic voters.
3: I mean, I think he's right, Crystal. And uh, unlike Politico, we'll mention some of the other candidates who are in the race. Jake Uger and Marianne Williamson also sounded off. They had a press conference on the subject. Here's what they had to say.
1: Marianne's at 12%. She would be what tied with DeSantis above Nikki Haley. She would be second among the Republicans, let alone the fact that she's second among Democrats. On which planet is not is that not a valid candidate? It's 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 so absurd. It's Kafka esque. Oh, a person polling higher than almost any challenger on the Republican or Democratic side doesn't exist.
0: It's worth noting as well. There's one person who could put an end to all this craziness, and that's President Biden. President Biden should simply make a phone call, say this isn't right, make sure it's changed. And it would be.
1: Such a great point. If I was a president, I'd be like, oh, Marianne and Dean are running against me.
0: Great. No problem. Let's hear it out. It is hurting the Democratic Party and its chances for 2024 that they are acting this way. Jenk Dean and I are not hurting. The democratic chances in 2024. They are.
3: Yeah. I mean, she's obviously right. And all the candidates should be outraged at this, Crystal. And yet I think this barely dented mainstream coverage
2: yeah. over the entire And week. the only reason it dented at all is because Dean of Phillips. Dean Phillips. Yep. And so that's why I'm I'm glad he's in the race, because mm-hmm. to have this like centristy member of Congress, you know, has the right credentials for the media to pay attention to and whatever, um, helps to elevate the just brazen. Undemocratic nature of this process. And of course, it goes without saying the irony and the hypocrisy of a Democratic Party that claims to be, quote unquote, saving democracy by literally canceling democracy in the state of Florida is quite something. And I think Jenk's comment there that it's is Kafka-esque, like, that's the best word you could possibly use for this because, so in the state of Florida, just to get into some of the nitty-gritty of this, in the state of Florida, under state law, it's left up to the party to decide who gets put on the ballot. Now, that already to me is like, eh, there should be some sort of, like, a formal process outside of the, the parties that, you know, you get this many put signatures on the petition or whatever, like it is in many states. But there are other states that also have it in their law that basically the party decides. And in those instances, in other states, they looked, okay, who's eligible. You know, some of them said, OK, Cenk, he's not, you know, he's uh, a, not a natural-born citizen, so he's not going to be on the ballot. But they uh-huh. they looked at it and they just put, OK, these are the contenders. They're the ones that have filed. We're putting them on the ballot. In Florida, they really did an end run here. Um, Dean Phillips says they were reaching out to the Florida Democrats. OK, what's your process? How do we get on the ballot, etc. They were supposed to submit their list of approved candidates on, I think, uh, last Thursday. They did it before then on November 1st and just put Biden on there, didn't give anyone a heads up about how this was all going to go down and just completely canceled the primary in the state of Florida. It's, It's truly outrageous. And um, exposes how, you know, how hollow the Democratic Party's words about how much they care about democracy ultimately are. It's preposterous. And again, at a time when they claim Donald Trump is this, you know, threat to democracy, which I accept after January 6th, I think that's accurate. I think he is a genuine threat to democracy and that everything's on the line and this is existential, et cetera, et cetera. But you're doing everything to guarantee that this Profoundly weakened candidate in Joe Biden is the only guy that anyone has an opportunity to vote for. The other thing I was thinking about Sagar is like, Mm. Biden is way ahead. You know, Marion's at like 12%, like Jenks said. Dean Phillips is at like 8%. You know, Jenks at like 1% or 2% in the polls that he's been put on at this point. So you got a really, really large lead here. But I think they feel that their position is precarious. And whether it is or not, it's hard to say. But they're looking at the polls, the fact that so many Democratic voters are very anxious about Joe Biden. How many Democratic voters are very upset with Joe Biden? How many Democratic voters really hate his policy on Israel? His policy on Israel is more popular with Republicans than it is with Democrats. And they feel a sense of vulnerability, whether that is actually real or not. And so they're worried that, you know, somebody could catch fire in this moment and really take off and make a run at it, even though, you know, from the outside, you look at it and it seems like he's got this thing sewn up.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's so obvious Whenever look, they are trying to rig. Ra- they are they are not trying. They are rigging it completely for Biden's benefit. In a certain sense, though, Crystal, I think that is probably a good thing because they can own the decision a hundred percent. Should he eventually lose to Trump, and then maybe they will have like a total reorganization and reexamination of their priorities. Although that already did happen, and none of that ended up happening. Right. Instead, so- they
2: just blamed. Bernie Sanders and uh, Russia and whatever. I
3: wonder who will get the blame this time. Well, I mean, you can't blame him. You can't blame primary people this time because this time around, they didn't even get to run against him, for real. There was they'll no They'll blame primary,
2: the third-party but... candidates.
3: That's true. They'll, they'll blame RFK.
2: RFK, yeah, Jill Stein, Cornel West. That's, okay. who, they'll, that's who they'll blame right. this time well, around. I'm this general election is going to be wild. I mean, the I'm primaries are like very anti-democratic and there's not much drama on the Republican side either. But the general election... Is going to be really wild. If you have RFK, if you've got Cornell, Jill Stein, Joe Manchin, or whoever, this is going to be a different landscape, I think, than we've ever seen before. And it could be, uh, you know, it could be kind of total chaos in terms of who actually comes out on top and whether anyone's able to get 270 electoral votes. It's going to be really interesting.
3: Yeah, we've been reading about about contingent elections here to prepare, if anybody's interested. Go ahead and Google that term before we uh, tell you all about it. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, let's go and move on to George Santos. Santos, who will always be congressman in our hearts, uh, was officially expelled from the House (laughs) of Representatives uh, after the ethics report. America's congressman delivered an ethics report uh, from the House of Representatives that accused him of using campaign funds for a variety of personal reasons. Botox,
2: OnlyFans.
3: Botox and (laughs) OnlyFans being the most egregious (laughs) examples, but many, many, many others. (laughs) Campaign fraud, uh, lying about his background, deceiving the voters of the uh, district from New York that he eventually ended up uh, representing. Here was the final vote tally against him.
5: The yays are 311. The nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative. The resolution is adopted. Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434.
3: That makes George Santos the sixth uh, person ever to be expelled from the House of Representatives. Wow. Interestingly enough, he is the only congressman to ever be expelled from the House of Representatives who was not actually convicted of a crime, which is what the justification of many of the people who voted to save Santos said, is they mm. were like, look, he hasn't actually been convicted of this. Matt Gates, who also has an ethics complaint against him regarding some of his shenanigans going on with uh, girls and potential hookers down in the state of uh, Florida is actually well, the one who really made that point because I believe a report is coming out.
4: Against him, mm, although he to be
3: sense. to be very was exonerated, you know, by the department or not exonerated, he was uh, at the very least not prosecuted by the Department of Justice. So he's trying to say, like, look, just because you have a bad ethics complaint against you doesn't mean that if you're con- unless you're convicted, then really that's the only case where you should be expelled. Santos, though, as we have previously shown, people is going out with a bang. Almost certainly, let's put this <laughs> please up there on the screen. So Santos says he will now be filing official complaints. Let's go ahead and put uh, keep these up there. He says Monday I will be filing an official complaint with the Office of Congressional Ethics against a New York Congresswoman regarding her questionable stock trading since joining the Ways and Means Committee. He says the same thing about Mike Lawler, who was one of those people who uh, had campaigned against Mr. Santos in the Republican Party. He says Congressman Lawler owns portions of Checkmate Strategies and he uses the same firm he is the beneficiary of to pay for services related to his campaign. I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, says if that's this, true. It is. Yeah. I mean, it says uh, of uh, Ray LaLota. He says it has been raised in local media that the congressman obtained his id attending hofstra in day school while he was supposed to be working at the board of his uh, uh board of elections sorry the a- jd attending the board attending hofstra in day school when he was supposed to be working at the board of elections Is that a problem? and then on congressman menendez saying while congressman menendez has not been invoked by the diligent investigation of the doj into his father there remains a question of what he did know and when did he know mm-hmm. it basically he's being a troll on all of these but it does hit home a point of this What is Santos really guilty of? Santos is guilty of just taking it a little bit too far. Outside of the officialdom, as he points out like with Congressman Mike Lawler, there are all kinds of legal ways to be totally corrupt. And I'm not saying Lawler himself is corrupt. It's about a system where you can work for a firm, you're allowed to work part-time for a law firm, which can get business, which literally has business before the House of Representatives, and you can still do that when you're an elected representative. As he also points out, uh, whenever it comes to campaign funds, I remember uh, seeing reports that what was it, Eric Cantor, the guy who who lost here in Virginia, yeah, who the was a the house. He had spent more on steak at a high quality steak restaurant here in Washington, DC, than his primary opponent had spent in the primary race against him. Wow. Which is only just to show people like if you're on campaign business, they can pay for a hell of a lot of steak and alcohol that people are all consuming as long as you're talking about it. They pay for your travel, they can pay for your spouse's travel, they can pay for your spouse's clothes. I mean, as long as you file, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and file the requisite paperwork and all that, you can get away with a lot of sketchy stuff whenever it comes to campaign finance. Of course, Santos took it to a whole other level, committing outright fraud and also uh also spending, you know, items on personal, uh, spending money on personal items that have nothing to do with campaign business. But to me, it's only a step or so removed from a lot of the legalized corruption that already exists in the electoral
2: system. His fraud and his lies were of like uh, tacky. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and also very repeated and undeniable yes. nature. I saw there was another Republican congressman who was accusing him of like stealing their credit, yeah, credit card, card info. And yeah.
3: Him. And his mom.
2: And charging, was right. it his mom or his yeah, wife? His, his mom, mom as well, yeah. Oh my
3: God.
2: <laughs> and charging campaign, max out campaign right. contributions to it. And then yeah. we know from this report, uh, allegedly, that he was then using those campaign contributions as his own personal piggy bank. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, that makes it pretty hard to deny. That it, the repeated lies, the fact that it was everything, the fact that it was you know things he didn't even need to lie about, every single thing that came out of his mouth, even his name is in doubt. Like his oh, that's right. You know, what's his, his real or what's his whether or not he's name? really gay is in doubt. Remember, he's married to a woman. Like everything about this man is up for debate, and uh, nothing is as it seems. Which is part of why I'm I'm just so fascinated by him because I can't, I just, I'm not wired like that. You know, I don't know if I had a guilty conscience or what, but the fact that he could just, anything that he thought this person wanted to hear in the moment, he would tell them. You know, oh, you were a volleyball star? I played volleyball. Oh, you went to this college? I went to that college. What, you know, oh, you're looking for like a token gay conservative who doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, is critical of trans rights? I'll be that guy. Like, I'll be that guy. No problem. Let me lean into that. Um, Oh, you're looking for, you know, someone to speak at your Jewish event? I'm Jewish. Sure. I'll speak at your event. It's wild to me. And I guess that many other people are also interested in such a character because there's a movie that's going to be made about him. Put this up on the screen. I will watch the hell out of this. Um, the meteoric political rise of George Santos and the web of fabulous tales it was built on are getting a movie treatment. HBO Films has optioned the rights to a new book. Mark Chusano, maybe I'm going to go with? The fabulous, the book is called The Fabulous, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos, which was published on November 28, 2023. He has sort of a uniquely American character. Oh, absolutely. Like uniquely American, mm-hmm. like con artist, charlatan, snake oil salesman, the fake it till you make it, all the way to becoming a member of Congress. There's some uh, Trump-esque qualities here, but Santos doesn't quite have the... Um, uh, the talent to pull off what Trump has been able to He doesn't to have off. the
3: riz, Crystal. Riz, by the way, is the Oxford uh, Dictionary's word of the year. Oh, really? Um, so I will be incorporating it more into
2: my <laughs> uh
3: Thank you to the Gen Zs for popularizing it. But I agree with you. I mean, Santos is actually not just an American— uh, character, he's a throwback to some of the original House of Representative members in during a totally rigged process and the way that snake oil and all that. What do you think the modern West and the you know American economy was built on in the Gilded Age and all at that time? So. In many ways, he reminds me uh, of that. I'm I'm sad to see him go, uh, but we will, of course. He's not going to go out with a bang. We just saw a report that came across uh, that no television networks are hiring George Santos. Unfortunately, honestly for us, I would love <laughs> to see him go at it now that he's totally unchanged. Maybe
2: we'll have him here on the he's show. He's always been pretty unchanged before uh, being yeah, on Yeah,
3: fair enough. I, I'm going to send him an invite. I'm going to send oh him an Oh my God, invite. I don't uh, know if I can handle that. That'd be that. fun. I'd just be like, all right, just... Tell me about yourself, Mr. Devalder. We'll start there. What's your actual name? Who are you? And what are you alleging? So anyway, it's going to be fun.
2: Indeed. All right. So uh, you brought up TV news. We got some TV news updates here. MSNBC major shakeup of their weekend lineup, including the cancellation of Mehdi Hassan's show. Let's put this up on the screen. He confirmed it in a tweet. Yes, the Mehdi Hassan show has ended on Peacock. That's their streaming service. And will be ending on MSNBC next month. Still a few weeks left. Thank you all for watching over the past three years going forward. I will serve as guest anchor across prime shows and beyond. And as an on-air political analyst goes on to say thanks for that pouring of love and support. Thanks, of course, to my team, humbled and appreciative, not going anywhere. And you'll hear from me lots in 2024. Mm. Interesting. So, Mehdi is one of three Muslim anchors at MSNBC who have come in for quite a bit of scrutiny and criticism because of their dissent in Israel's war on Gaza. We reported this, you know, this happened a while ago at the beginning of the war, put this up on the screen from Semaphore. Uh, all three of those Muslim hosts were sidelined one after another after um, the ADL had criticized them and after they had, again, expressed sort of dissenting views um, on the Israeli war in Gaza. MSNBC, they say, has quietly taken three of their Muslim broadcasters out of the anchor's chair since Hamas's attack on Israel last Saturday amid America's wave of sympathy for Israeli terror victims. And it also comes immediately after uh, Mehdi did an interview with a Netanyahu spokesperson that, listen, if you guys aren't familiar with him, he's kind of famous for being a really aggressive questioner, grilling people in power. He's done famous interviews with like John Bolton, et cetera. And so he had one of those interviews with a Netanyahu spokesperson that we actually covered here because it revealed a few new details about what happened and unfolded on October 7th in particular. Here's a little bit of a taste of that.
5: Have you
6: seen one picture of a single dead Hamas terrorist in the fighting in Gaza? Not one. Is that by accident or is that because Hamas can control... Hamas but can Mark, control the information. You asked me a question and you Gaza. said you would be brief. I, have, I haven't, you're right. But I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because they're the you pictures don't... Hamas wants you to see. Exactly. They're also people no, that your government has uh, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children or do you deny that? No, them? I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. First of all, we don't want to see a we single do. child have... killed. Okay, here's my question you, say I agree with you. Here, I agree with you. We shouldn't blindly believe anything Hamas says. But why should we believe what your government says either? Your military spokesman on Monday pointed to an Arabic document in the basement of a Gaza hospital and claimed it was a guardian list on which every terrorist writes his name. But that was false. It was just a calendar with the days of the week on it. Your colleague in the prime minister's office, Ophir Gendelman, posted behind the scenes footage from a Lebanese short film and claimed it was Palestinians in Gaza faking their own injuries. That tweet is still up a week later. That is endless disinformation from your government, is it not?
2: So now these clips frequently went viral on Twitter, but his show, like many other MSNBC Mm. shows, was not getting, you know, exceptionally high ratings, was not doing all that well in the ratings. And so that's what MSNBC is basically saying is it's a ratings issue. It's a cost cutting issue. I'll tell you, you know, what I'm hearing from people is. Um, You know, the the dissent on Israel is part of the picture, Mm -hmm. but the bigger picture is that he's also very, like, aggressive on social media Mm -hmm. in a way that is uncomfortable for NBC executives as well. So do I think that they're sending a bit of a message— by uh, by canceling Medi's show and you know so publicly demoting him. Yes. Do I think it's like a variety of factors that went into this? Yeah, that's probably true as well.
3: I think that is true. I will not cry for Medi Hassan. I think he is a complete blowhard. Uh, he was a Rushgate fanatic whenever he, uh, he was on his various shows. COVID freak whenever it came to uh, de- you know going against the lab leak theory and all of this. Uh, I will quote again from my good friend uh, Zed Jelani. Having worked with Mehdi, this is a pattern. He learns very little about a topic. Goes 100% full throttle with no nuance. He plays to a partisan crowd and frequently makes elementary errors like claiming that black people cannot vote in Georgia. Now, that said, I don't support him being canceled uh, for his views on Israel and Gaza. My biggest problem uh, that comes from Mehdi is exactly this, is he is a fundamentalist in everything that he believes. Now, is he a, is he a talented interviewer? Yes, but there's also a very famous clip that people can go and can watch of him uh, talking about his, at that time, fundamentalist Islamic views and how he viewed other people. Has he evolved or not? I have no idea. But it just is demonstrative of the way that he carries himself in public. And what comes and hits for me was a video here that he did with Matt Taibbi on the Twitter files where he attempted to go after him. Let's take a listen.
6: Your own words, Matt. You crossed that line and Musk Crystal, has you. The, Those the, are your the, words. The hilarity of this
1: coming from MSNBC, which did nothing but vomit up uh, fake Russiagate stories that came straight from the FBI for six consecutive years that you guys still haven't apologized Great.
6: for. Uh, Great. Is I, I, I wasn't there in that period, so I've got nothing to apologize. I'm asking you your
3: words. So, Crystal, as I understand it, I'm on, uh, how do you say it? Amon? Amen. Amen. Eamon will continue to be on the air. Uh, he will, I think, he still have a prominent role at the network. I think he's a far more responsible person whenever it comes to this conflict. And I understand, look, you can think he's done a good job on Gaza and all of that, but he is not a person that I would want on my side. Uh, even in terms of uh, debating and uh, holding up the record of the Biden administration has pushed some of the most ridiculous propaganda. So, I don't know. This is not somebody who uh, I think should be spoken up for as some sort of like paragon of being truly independent. I think... On Gaza and on Israel specifically, yes, it's an issue where he may be, quote unquote, courageous whenever it comes to his colleagues. Although I guess the only fair rebuttal is that he's no worse than many of his other MSNBC colleagues. Well,
2: here's the thing is, are we better off with Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC or not? And I think undoubtedly the aspect of the job of interviewing powerful people and actually challenging them, he is very good at. He is very good at. And I do think that that is a major part of the reason, and the fact that those clips of him pushing power for people go viral on Twitter is a major part of the reason that he's being canceled. And it's not just on Israel and Palestine. I went back. I actually just googled like Medi Grills on YouTube. Yeah, that's his thing. Because that's his thing. Yeah. He grilled John Bolton on Iraq and on war crimes. He grilled the U.S. Uh, an American U.S. ambassador on hypocrisy with regards to war crimes in Yemen. He grilled Cedric Richmond. A Biden aide on healthcare failures. He grilled Bernie on Build Back Better. He stood up for Julian Assange, very unusual in the cable news landscape. Um, he pressed Corrine Jean Pierre over Biden administration failures. He pressed one of those Lincoln Project ghouls about their failures as well. He criticized identity politics of hiring wow. Lloyd Austin. As a, uh, as the Secretary of Defense, after he had served on the Raytheon as a board member, so I'm not saying I agree with many on everything. With many, and I've had plen- plenty of differences and have many disagreements that he would attest to as well. But is he being fired because he's bad at the job? No. He's being fired because of the part of the job that he's actually good at, and also because he's apparently not boring enough on Twitter. Now they're using Eamon, who I, I yeah. have known for a long time and respect very much as a journalist, and especially on Israel and Palestine, where he has a depth of knowledge. They're using him to basically be like, see, it's not about the fact that he's Muslim, but do you don't think that people get the message? about how loud and aggressive you're allowed to be, how far out of line you're allowed to step, especially when you're not a Rachel Maddow or you're not like their number one star or rating getter. People are definitely getting that message loud and clear, and you know it also isn't lost on me that you had that ADL dude go on Morning Joe and accuse him and Eamon and yeah, Ali Velshi of like Hamas talking points and this absolutely outrageous thing. So I think that they felt like they needed to do something to appease people who were accusing them of being like Hamas propagandists. I think
3: I think that's fair. I guess it's just you know what I think the fundamental difference is is that he is somebody who assumes the absolute worth, worst. Faith of every single person who does not agree with him.
2: That's a just that a, has not been my experience uh, because many has disagreed with me on Twitter and said it in a actually very respectful way. Plus, of like, he, he disagrees with a and lot of people. No, what but especially thinks. it was on you know this fraught thing about yeah. like you know did economic what was the thing that people economic, oh, economic insecurity, insecurity. Yeah. that this was part of electing Trump and he very much disagreed with that. He was like, no, it's the racism. And I'm like, listen, it's complex and you can't look at it economics and say and that's a very fraught issue. And he disagreed with me very respectfully without attacking my personal character on. My experience so that hasn't has been, been my experience with the him opposite, whatsoever.
3: where I have basically had to mute him because he constantly blew up me and Zed for exactly actually on the same topic. So I think his orientation on whether you're a fellow liberal or like a fellow traveler or somebody who's opposed to him and especially the type of uh, I what I perceive as identity politics and Islamism that he likes to justify and push here in America. That stuff drives me What's, absolutely give crazy. Give
2: me an example. I mean, I
3: know. the the video that he is, uh, that the video that shows From him viral early Okay, who cares? From how long ago? He's never apologized for his Was it on MSNBC? A, no, no.
2: So it has nothing to do with no, the cancellation. I'm saying, this is about the character,
3: about the person who we are disagreeing with. I actually, I'm pretty sure the disagreement him and I had was even before he was on MSNBC. But my point that remains here is about the way that I think that he has approached most of his detractors, including people like Zedd, who actually also had to block him. So look, maybe all of this is a little bit too personal, um, but some of what Glenn Greenwald has brought up, let's go ahead and put this up there, please, up on the screen. Is And he makes this point, I think, what you're saying. MSNBC anonymously is denying that Mehdi's criticism of Israel had anything to do with his firing, insisting instead that it was due to his almost invisible ratings, and Mehdi will not say. Go to the next part, and this is where I'm curious what you think. He says it could be anything. One would expect a journalist to provide the explanation, but I guess Mehdi doesn't want to anger the corporate bosses, so he is staying quiet. And then surmises that people with self-respect would quit. So, what is it like in this situation, having worked inside the beast, Where, like, what are the strictures that he would have around him? Where it, like, what does his non-compete look like? What what is he allowed to do? What is he allowed to say?
2: I mean, he definitely, if he was going to speak out and quit right now, he would definitely have, at the very least, a legal fight on his hands. Okay. So it's not just about, like, I mean, listen, I think it's very difficult to stay uh, if he's indeed been canceled for effectively doing his job well. I do think that that is a difficult thing. I do think Medi, you know, he was at the Intercept, then he moved over to MSNBC, I think he wants to be in mainstream press, and so that may factor into his decision making too. I don't know, but um, but yeah, I think it's it, they put you in a bind to make it so that it is very difficult to speak out against them. If you left, you'd have this long non compete, or you couldn't do anything for some period of time, or like I mm. said, you have this huge legal battle on your hands. And you know, Tucker basically told Fox News to shove it. But Tucker also has a lot more money, is a lot more money. famous.
3: Uh, I support Mehdi going independent. I think his non-competes are BS. Even if I don't like the guy, uh, I think it's crazy that if if he was canceled for uh, this particular reason. But it also is a little bit of nature of the beast in terms of when you're working
2: yeah. for this well, organization. You know what I would say is, ironically, I actually think that Mehdi would do a lot better independent. No question. Because totally right. The the things he's doing at MSNBC, like, MSNBC audience is not all that interested in, like, holding Biden officials to account or standing up for Julian Assange. So in that way, he may have been an awkward fit there just based on this sort of small sycophantic audience that they've cultivated and his clips do routinely Go viral online. True. So he's sort of better at that game than he is necessarily at the cable news game. So I think if he did step out on his own, I think he could be successful.
3: I think that uh, maybe the reason why is, as you said, he's famous for interviews. But Karine Jean-Pierre is not going on independent.
2: YouTube, That's right. So, so, That's exactly and, right. Or
3: the Israeli president is not going. Listen, we tried. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. So if he if he wants to remain famous for his interviews and all that. It is going to be tough, but I mean, I guess that just comes down to the nature of the beast for, for what he's doing. This, by the way, is why Cable is flawed and also an inherently bad model. Yes.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.
0: Right Rug Flooring. Bristol, what are you taking a look at?
2: Well, we may never again see a headline that so perfectly encapsulates the U.S. policy toward Israel's total war on Gaza. U.S. sends Israel 2,000-pound bunker buster bombs for Gaza war. After sending massive bombs artillery shells, U.S. also urges Israel to limit civilian casualties. What a sick joke this all is at this point leaking to the US press how concerned you are about civilian deaths while expediting shipments of the very weapons that Israel has used to slaughter innocents on a scale that we have not seen from a developed country in modern history. Every day, practically every hour, we learn of some new fresh horror. Here is one of the very latest. A journalist, allowed into a hospital that had been forcibly evacuated by the IDF, makes the most grisly of discoveries. Four premature babies in a state of unimaginable decay, their bodies eaten by worms and mauled by stray dogs, after doctors were forced to evacuate that facility. Now, the nurse responsible for their care described the wrenching decision to leave them behind in an interview with The Washington Post. He said, quote, I felt like I was leaving my own children behind. That nurse took the baby he considered to be the strongest and most able to survive without oxygen with him when they were all forced to flee. That baby was then taken to Al Shifa Hospital, which was raided mere days later. Now, I want you to understand these atrocities and the many others we've witnessed in Israel's assault on Gaza, they are not normal. They are not the unavoidable cost of war. These babies and the other untold thousands of innocents who have died are not collateral damage. They are intentional targets, and a new expose by 972 Magazine lays out the exact strategy that lies behind what can only be called a campaign of all-out terror. In this war, civilians and civilian infrastructure, things like hospitals, are targeted directly with the explicit goal of shocking the population. And in a dystopian flourish, AI is being used to accelerate the carnage. Here is that piece from 972, a mass assassination factory inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. Now, when you look at today's videos of children buried under rubble, entire residential neighborhoods destroyed, lifeless bodies of babies in the arms of grief-stricken parents. Keep these words in mind from one of 972's sources. Quote, Nothing happens by accident. When a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it was not a big deal for her to be killed. Israel's periodic wars on Gaza have never been the beacon of humanitarian war fighting that Israel's presented to the world, but some of the minimal guardrails that did prevent mass civilian death have been lifted in this current assault. This is evident in Israel's overwhelming fo- focus on two types of targets, private residences and so-called power targets, which are things like hospitals, apartment buildings, infrastructure, and other key centers of civil society. During the first five days of this war, half of the targets that were bombed were, quote-unquote, power targets. And the goal of this bombing campaign was not to eradicate Hamas, as Israel has claimed. Instead, the goal was to, quote, create a shock that, among other things, will reverberate powerfully and lead civilians to put pressure on Hamas, as one source put it to 972. Another source explained that the buildings only needed the most remote connection to Hamas or Islamic Jihad to be targeted for complete destruction. Quote, if they would tell the whole world that the Islamic Jihad offices on the 10th floor are not important as a target, but that its existence is a justification to bring down the entire high-rise with the aim of pressuring civilian families who live in it in order to put pressure on terrorist organizations, this would itself be seen as terrorism, so they do not say it. In other words, terror is the explicit goal here. It's the very same goal, by the way, as Hamas on October 7th, except in this instance, it's terror by a supposedly civilized nation-state armed to the teeth by the world superpower, and given diplomatic cover with zero red lines. The attacks on these power targets have also stood out for our unprecedented scale of civilian death. According to 972, in prior wars, civilians were more consistently warned ahead of bombings. The IDF would leaflet, they would send messages, they would use a quote unquote roof knock to warn the building was about to be attacked. They would use drones then to even monitor civilian departures to make sure people were living, leaving. Not so in this war, where many buildings have been bombed with no warning, and with hundreds of civilians still inside. Another major focus of Israel's bombing campaign has been the private residences of low-level Hamas operatives. As one source who was unhappy with this practice said, in the majority of cases, military activity is not conducted from these targeted homes. I remember thinking that it was like if Palestinian militants would bomb all the private residences of our families when Israeli soldiers go back to sleep at home on the weekend. The blanket assault on these private homes, where many families were still located, has been aided by a new AI tool, which uses algorithms to produce targets. According to The Guardian, this has dramatically accelerated the IDS target generating capability from 50 per year to 100 per day. Quote, Hamas members who don't really mean anything live in homes across Gaza. So they mark the home and bomb the house and kill everyone there. Taken together... These reports thoroughly debunk the already preposterous idea that Israel was surgically targeting Hamas. No. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari was closer to the truth when he said this, quote, "The emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy." These are the tactics that the US government is meekly protesting as the bombing campaign now moves to the south, where most of Gaza's 2.2 million residents have been forced to flee already. Hundreds of Palestinians have been killed in that renewed assault. If this bombing of six residential high-rises in Khan Yunus is any indication, the focus on destroying power targets to terrorize the entire population remains firmly in place. And the truth is, the Israeli government can't be so stupid as to think that any of this is actually in the long-term security interests of Israel. To think that massacring children by the thousands is going to lead the Palestinian population to turn on Hamas, it will not lead the population to turn on Hamas, but it will certainly lead some of the population to turn into Hamas or to embrace other groups advocating violent armed resistance. No, the real goal is to put on a show for the Jewish-Israeli public, 58% of whom do not believe the IDF has been brutal enough, and only 1.8% of whom believe that they have gone too far. The real goal is a last-ditch attempt by Bibi to stay in power by showing just what a monster he can be to satisfy a monstrous public appetite for death and destruction. As one source explained to 972, there is a feeling that senior officials in the army are aware of their failure on October 7th, and they are busy with the question of how to provide the Israeli public with an image of victory that will salvage their reputation. Apparently, that sought-after image of victory is that of decomposing babies, left to suffocate and starve in a power target also known as a hospital. Real tough guys. And so, Sagar, these are the details.
3: And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.
2: Wanted to talk a little bit more about Bibi Netanyahu and what he might be thinking in this moment. So excited to uh, welcome Scott Horton. He's with the Libertarian Institute and also Antiwar.com. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you,
7: man. Thank you very much for having me, both of you. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, So let's start with this. Put this news article up on the screen. We mentioned this earlier um, from The Intercept. They're reporting Netanyahu's goal for Gaza, quote, thin population to a minimum. He has apparently tasked one of his top advisors with coming up with a plan to, quote, unquote, thin the population and pressure the U.S. to go along with this plan. Um, Scott, I wanted to talk to you because you have sort of studied Netanyahu and his political ideology and how he's operated for a long time. So when you see a headline like that, What is your reaction to it? And, you know, how does this dovetail with Netanyahu's political ideology throughout his career?
7: Mm. Well, I mean, just with the last thing first there, I think this represents the complete failure of the Netanyahu doctrine and his panic. He has to keep the war going as long as he can to stay in office. And he has to try to figure out how to make his legacy as the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history be anything other than the catastrophe of October the 7th. And so he's got to come up with something. And this is his brilliant idea, is he's going to cleanse the Gaza Strip. All this uh-huh. talk about targeting Hamas. Yeah, they've been talking out of both sides of their mouths for two months now, right? Man, maybe we'll just get rid of all the Palestinians. And then they go, no, we're just targeting the bad guys. And we're real sorry if some innocent civilians get in the way, but not that sorry. But it is what it is. And then they go, no, but we really want to kick them all out into the Sinai Peninsula. Or then, I can't even believe this. This is just this alone is is world history that the wall street journal published an article by two israeli ministers saying you take them yep and i mean this is just incredible and and they've leaked all various kind of uh, trial balloons saying yeah we'll give twenty five thousand to all different countries all around the world you say you love the palestinians so much why won't you help us cleanse them off of their land And so this is, I guess, supposed to be Netanyahu's big accomplishment, So he can go down in history as anything other than the guy whose doctrine, the, the official Netanyahu doctrine, completely blew up in that society's face on October the 7th.
3: Scott, uh, Daryl Cooper, our mutual friend, recommended uh, that I talk to you. And it, whenever Daryl tells me that you're a guy who's gotten really deep on this, I'm like, he knows the ins and outs. And so something I'm curious, as you talked about the Netanyahu doctrine, if you could take a step back about mm-hmm. Netanyahu, his relationship to Hamas, to Palestinian statehood, going back throughout his career, and how a lot of it had culminated, not only with October 7th, but with the policy that they're moving towards right now.
7: Yeah, so I mean, what the heck? I'll go back to 1996, when he first was prime minister, a guy who ended up being Dick Cheney's guy, David Wormser, along with Richard Pearl, probably the most powerful of the neoconservatives of the first W. Bush term era. Um, these guys in Douglas fight. they wrote a plan called a clean break, and it was for Netanyahu. And what it said was, we want regime change in Iraq in order to weaken Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah, so that we don't have to live up to the Oslo Accord and give the Palestinians their state. And Mm -hmm. the thinking is completely crazy, but the idea was that if, if Israel and or America could do a coup, Or ultimately a war in Iraq, that Jordan and Turkey would be dominant in Syria. And then they would force the Shiite clergy in Najaf to force Hezbollah to stop being friends with Iran and be nice to Israel instead. And then once the pressure on Israel's northern front is relieved, then they won't have to deal in good faith with the Palestinians and negotiate over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So as in the deal and their sworn promises. Uh, So This is the whole point of the Iraq War, of Iraq War II, was to help Israel so they wouldn't have to give justice to the Palestinians. And so, you know, Netanyahu was, and in fact, he he later was caught on candid camera, and anyone can watch this on YouTube, uh, bragging about how he fooled Bill Clinton at Y River and had <laughs> promised he's going to make these concessions toward a Palestinian state. But ha ha, Area C is two thirds of the whole thing, sucker. And all this, he talks all about it. And he says, Americans, 80% of Americans support us. It's absurd. America is easily moved. They'll do whatever I tell them. And so then Sharon was uh, prime minister from I guess 2000, or very early 01, uh, or very late 2000 through 05 when he had his stroke, or late 05 when he had his stroke. So... Sharon had this doctrine. He was also Likud with Netanyahu, although they ended up splitting and he created his own party, Kadima. But he had a policy which avowedly at the time was sabotage of the peace process. They called the disengagement. And you'll hear pro-Israel hawks all the time say, gee, we gave them a Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip and all we got in return is rockets. Well, that's just not true. They withdrew, but they didn't end the occupation. Israel kept complete and total control of the Gaza Strip. Essentially, they just took the warden and the prison guards and move them to the outer perimeter, but still a prison uh, as nothing like a sovereign state. Israel kept total control over their airspace, their borders, their uh, taxation, their revenue, their, uh, their fishing rights offshore, every single thing. The occupation didn't end. And in fact, I'll urge your audience to Google these terms. It'll come right up. There's no mistake in it. It's Ariel Sharon formaldehyde. And that's, of course, the preservative that you use for corpses, right, when you're preparing Mm -hmm. them for burial. And so the quote is from Dove Weisglass. It's Dove with no E. Dove Weisglass, and he worked for Sharon, an advisor to Sharon, and he's explaining to Haaretz, the withdrawal, this is again the 2005 so-called disengagement, the withdrawal is formaldehyde. It puts the peace process in formaldehyde. It means that with with the Palestinians divided and conquered, those in charge in Gaza, they can't resort to participation in any international organizations or any kind of negotiation. And we can say In fact, he says, with the blessing of the Congress and the president, we got a no one to talk to certificate. You know, like they always say that we just have no partner for peace. Well, we have a no one to talk to certificate and we won't have to talk to them until Gaza becomes Norway, meaning, I guess, a very polite and harmless and nonviolent society. In other words, never. And then so... um, uh, ehud Olmert was in there in the meantime between Sharon and Netanyahu, and he was a bit less worse than the two of them, although he was Sharon's guy and, but he didn't really make any progress uh you know while he was in there toward any real negotiations and then when Netanyahu came in, the Netanyahu doctrine basically goes like this: he was coming into a situation where all of the Sunni kings of the Arabian Peninsula, all them sock puppets of the American empire, essentially, they had promised that they would never normalize relations with Israel until the Palestinians got an independent state. And... The Saudis had put forward their peace plan, a very reasonable one, in 2002 and had repeatedly suggested that, uh, I think in 2007, it was the basis of the Annapolis talks, possibly. Anyway, very reasonable proposals uh, for a two-state solution. Uh, But then Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, figured out that no everybody's got a price and the american people can afford to borrow enough from south korea or somebody to pay it and so what we're going to do is we're going to give bahrain f16s we're going to give uae f35s we're going to forgive sudanese debt and we're going to uh the trump administration is going to recognize morocco's seizure of northern western sahara and With these bribes, and then they're working on Saudi Arabia, these are called the Abraham Accords. And with these bribes, what they did was they succeeded in getting these Sunni sock puppet GCC kingdom regimes to go ahead and normalize relations with Israel, which on the surface is great. That's what we want, is every nation to get along, open trade, lower and lower tariffs, and and more and more commercial relationships and, and fewer and fewer political relationships so that everybody in the world can get along, that's fine. But what it was really about was screwing the Palestinians. It was saying, you're not gonna get your independent state and you are not going to get independent uh, you know, citizenship in one state or in any kind of binational state, you lose. And people can go and look at Netanyahu's speech that he gave to the United Nations just two weeks before the October 7th attack, where he holds up a piece of paper, he shows the map, he's always got some visual aid. This time he shows the map of one state From the river to the sea, there's no carved out piece of the West Bank or Gaza there. And what he's saying is, that's it. We won. The Netanyahu doctrine has proved that Mm. I do not have to negotiate with the Palestinians. I do not have to concede citizenship rights or independence to them. And I can get what I want anyway. And the Palestinians, they're just going to have to get used to living on their bellies. And that's it.
2: Can you talk a little bit about these quotes that have been attributed to Netanyahu talking about Hamas, where he says, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring Mm -hmm. money to Hamas. He also said, uh, reportedly, this is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. Can you put those quotes in context for us?
7: Yeah, I mean, that's the other half of the Netanyahu doctrine right there. So the first part is we want to, uh, essentially get over the hurdle of dealing with the Palestinians in order to make a deal with the Sunni Arab states. And then the other half was making sure that Mahmoud Abbas, who, you know, Donald Trump talked about, like, oh, he's such a nice old grandpa. Like, he doesn't come across like Yasser Arafat even, much less Hamas, right? And so, That's a real problem from Likud's point of view. They don't even care as much about Gaza. They want that West Bank, that land, and the Palestinians there, they're just in the way. We're gonna have to figure that out later. Right now, it's facts on the ground. But if the consensus in America and Europe and what passes for the left in Israel is that, no, we have to deal with Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and give them a two-state solution, like in The Promise, then that ruins the Netanyahu doctrine. They want that land. So in order to prevent that, Netanyahu essentially uh, accelerated that Ariel Sharon policy. Now, just for time, I'll skip this, but I'll drop a great footnote for you, okay? The, everybody knows there was the election of 06 where Hamas won a plurality, not a majority, 17 years ago. And then there's a great article called The Gaza Bombshell. You gotta read it. It has quotes from David Wormser telling the truth about it in there even. It's incredible. It's The Gaza Bombshell by David Rose, and it's about how they tried to do a coup against Hamas after the election in favor of the PA But that blew up and failed, and that was how Hamas took over the Strip. And that was, of course, uh, before Netanyahu came back. That was during Ehud Olmert. But then when Netanyahu came back, he decided this is great. Just like with formaldehyde and the the, uh, Palestinians divided and conquered, now they're divided and conquered plus. Now, not only are they divided geographically in this way, but now you have Hamas in In control of Gaza and the PA in the West Bank. And so if anyone ever says, it's time for you guys to negotiate with the PA, they can point at Hamas in Gaza and say, nope, we have no partner for peace. You don't expect us to negotiate with these terrorists, do you? And so there's the the one famous quote that you just read there, Crystal, comes from Netanyahu briefing the leaders of the Likud party in the Knesset. And again, the quote is, we have to bolster Hamas. He says, transfer them money. And that means pressuring Qatar to transfer the money, basically. Right. Um, and in order to what? To, quote, to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state. And now here's what you do. You go to antiwar.com scott because I collect these quotes like Hot Wheels, okay? And I got about 10 or 12 of them for you from not just Netanyahu, but Bezalel Smatrich, who is his finance minister, who says, the PA is a liability, Hamas is an asset. He says, wow. in this game of delegitimization, Hamas is an asset. Wow. They can't go to the UN, they can't go to the International Criminal Court, they can't put us in a situation where we might need the U.S. to come and veto a resolution against us. They can't do nothing. And the more we have Hamas to point at, then the better situation we're in. And, and he even was, the question even was, yeah, but isn't Hamas dangerous? And he ends with, yeah, I don't think we need to worry about that. Just like Netanyahu in that quote that you read there, Crystal, ends with, don't worry, we control the height of the flames. Mm. And because of this imperial hubris, that's what reached out and got them on October the 7th. They thought that they had this perfectly in hand. As long as we have these good little pet terrorists in Gaza to point at and scapegoat and say, we have no partner for peace. Everybody repeat after me. We have no partner for peace. See the alliteration there? Two P words. You know it's Mm -hmm. true. We have no partner (laughs) for peace. And you can memorize it and you can repeat it so you know it's right. And it's some of the most successful Hezbollah probably in history, in fact.
2: Yeah, Hmm. so true.
3: Man, dropping knowledge here, Scott Horton. (laughs) Uh, You've given us an incredible amount of background here, sir. Uh, Where can people find out more about your work? Just antiwar.com slash Scott
7: yes sir that's my latest piece and okay. my latest two pieces about the current war at antiwar.com scott and i do have all of, of all the best quotes of lakud talking about why they really deliberately pursued this policy of supporting hamas it's called netanyahu's support for hamas backfired and i'm also the director of the libertarian institute and it happens to be our fun drive right now if you like what you hear folks libertarianinstitute.org donate and i'm the author of the book enough already Time to end the war on terrorism.
3: Excellent. We will have a link to all those in the description. We really appreciate you taking your time. I, mean, I don't think this is the last we'll see of you, sir. So thank you.
2: Thanks, Scott. Great thank to chat with you again. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our pleasure.
3: Okay, we'll see you guys later. we got a great show for everybody tomorrow.
0: Right Rug Flooring.